0: Great to be with you guys. Uh, We are in Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26, a rather uh, well-known text before us, uh, often known as the Last Supper, also known as the Lord's Supper, uh, but we're calling this sermon not the Last Supper because it wasn't. Um, But before we get into the text, I want to make a book recommendation to you. This is about Passover and communion and uh, Christ instituting that. Uh, So I, I want to recommend a book called Christ in the Passover. It's a really short book. You can read it in about an hour. But for those of you that are interested in the Jewish context, the things that happen in the Gospels, and particularly particular in this text and the fulfillment of Passover and how those Old Testament scriptures relate to what Christ has done and the incredible imagery that's there that's still practiced around the world today in Jewish ceremony, this is a great book. You can go to Amazon. Uh, just enter Christ in the Passover. I won't bother with the author names because if you just rent, enter Christ in the Passover on Amazon, it's on sale right now for 9 bucks. It's worth getting. We don't have it at the bookstore, so go to Amazon and get it. Even right now, you can play with your little phone and do that. Okay, we're going to be looking at verses 17 through 30. I'm reading and preaching from the NIV this morning. Matthew 26, verse 17 says, On the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Where do you want us to make preparations for you to eat the Passover? Passover. He replied, go into the city to a certain man and tell him, the teacher says, my appointed time is near. I'm going to celebrate the Passover with my disciples at your house. So the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and prepared the Passover. When evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the 12. And while they were eating, he said, truly, I tell you, one of you will betray me. They were very sad and began to say to him one after the other, surely you don't mean me, Lord. Jesus replied, The one who has dipped his hand into the bowl with me will betray me. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him. But woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. Then Judas, the one who would betray him, said, Surely you don't mean me, Rabbi. Jesus answered, You have said so. While they were eating, Jesus took the bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. This is God's holy word. Let's pray. God, we do thank you for your word, and we ask that this morning you would give us understanding. You would give us open ears and willing hearts this morning. Please, Lord, that you would help me to instruct the church in a way that illuminates who Christ is and the beauty of what he's done for us, and that these things would be done for the glory of Christ and for the good of the church and for the evangelization of the world, Lord. We ask it together in Jesus' name, amen. So as you realize, if you have any experience with scripture at all, the text that is before us has to do with the Lord's Supper, often called in the heading in your Bible, the Last Supper. But as I said, this was not Jesus' actual Last Supper with his disciples. After his resurrection, Jesus spent about 40 days with his disciples. They certainly dined together at that time before his ascension. And also in the text at the end of it, Jesus promised another greater supper. And in this text, he institutes a regular supper for the disciples and for us. So it's not the last supper. There's actually a lot of supping going on here and subsequently. But this was a Last Supper before the cross. The text that we have before us takes place on the evening before the arrest, trial, and execution of Jesus. This is placed at the end of what we generally call the Passion Week, which would also be in our text and on the church calendar the week of Passover, Passover where you'll remember we've talked about that Jesus, the Jesus and his disciples are celebrating. They are commemorating that time when God had delivered Israel from slavery to Egypt years and years before. And the key element of the Passover, you'll remember, was the Lamb. And we have all this imagery in the Bible of Jesus being the Lamb of God who fulfills all the Old Testament ways that lambs were used by God's people as sacrifices to God that their sins might be covered. In fact, you might remember that we had talked about on the day of the triumphal entry, which would have been Sunday, the beginning of this week, when Jesus entered Jerusalem seated on the donkey, that it was God's presentation of His lamb, and Israel was supposed to get the point when they were all choosing their own lambs that would be sacrificed at the end of this week, the Passover week. And so when Jesus says to his disciples, go and make preparations for the Passover in verse 17, dealing with that lamb that every Israelite was aware of during Passover week would have been part of the preparations. Part of the preparation for Passover was that the Jews would take their lambs to the temple, to the priests, and the priests would slaughter that lamb and collect the blood of that lamb and then burn the fat of that lamb on the altar and then send that lamb back with the family or or the cohort, the group that was gathering for the meal, to be eaten by them in the Passover celebration that night. So when we read in verse 17, they want to make preparations for Passover. Not only were they making the house nice, but they were making the lamb nice, so to speak, and going to the temple and having it slaughtered in commemoration of the fact that God had delivered them from slavery to Egypt through the sacrifice of a lamb. Now let's go back and look at that text that we've looked at a few times during our Passover week study to see it again. This is the original Passover that took place in the book of Exodus. When the Israelites were still in the land of Egypt, the Lord God gave the following instructions to Moses and Aaron. From now on, this month will be the first month of the year for you. Announce to the whole community of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, each family must choose a lamb or a young goat for a sacrifice, one animal for each household. The text continues. Take special care of this chosen animal until the evening of the 14th day of this month. So it was in their house during that week, come to be Passover week. Then the whole assembly of the community of Israel must slaughter their lamb or the young goat at twilight. That would be happening on this day. They are to take some of the blood and smear it on the sides of the top of the door frames of the houses where they eat the animal. That same night, they must roast the meat over fire and eat it along with bitter salad greens and bread made without yeast. The text continues. On that night, I will pass through the land of Egypt and strike down every firstborn son and firstborn male animal in the land of Egypt. I will execute judgment against all the gods of Egypt for I am the Lord. But the blood on your doorpost will serve as a sign marking the houses where you are staying. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. The plague of death will not touch you when I strike the land of Egypt. Now, we've talked about that quite a bit in our study of this last week of Christ's life, but let's highlight a couple of things that, is, that are important for us to understand. Number one, in God's economy and what God was doing in delivering Israel from slavery, a life had to be given for theirs to be spared. That's what the Passover is about. A life was given the lamb for theirs Israels to be spared. We see it again there in Exodus 12:13. The second thing that we saw in that text is that the same life that was given substituted for them for their lives to be spared, that same life that saved them also nourished them. We see that in verse 8, that not only was it slaughtered and the blood applied, but they would then later eat that sacrifice and be nourished on it for the freedom that they were entering. And the third point that's important for us is that this was, by God's decree, a new beginning for his people. He said at the beginning of that text, I want you to reset your calendars. So the whole life of Israel was reset according to this event where God delivered them from slavery and brought them into freedom and into his promises. Now, you probably are seeing that we have some New Testament corresponding truths about those things. Obviously, a life had to be given for our lives to be spared from God's wrath and God's judgment. 2 Corinthians 5.21 tells us God made Christ who never sinned to be the offering for our sin so that we could be made right with God through Christ. So God was telegraphing, painting the picture of, prophesying about, preparing the world for the substitutionary death of Christ in our place. Secondly, again, the same life that saves us also nourishes us, right? Jesus said in John 6, 35 about himself, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger and he who believes in me will never thirst. The Christian life is meant to be a life that is nourished and sustained and flourishes by feasting, so to speak, feeding on the person of Christ. The one who saved us is meant to sustain us in this Christian life. The very same one. It's not that we're just saved and then we go on to live any old way. We are saved by Christ into Christ's life and his life is to sustain us. And thirdly, As this was a new beginning for the people of God, Israel, so this salvation event of Christ substituted for us is meant to be a totally new beginning for us as believers. That is to reset and mark then the entirety of our lives. 2 Corinthians says, Since we believe that Christ died for all, we also believe that we have died to our old life. He died for everyone so that those who receive his new life will no longer live for themselves. Instead, they will live for Christ who died and was raised for them. This means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone. A new life has begun. Someone say, thank you, Jesus. And so all of this Old Testament salvific history, that is the story and the history of God working among his people, sits behind the context of this Last Supper, is unfolding during this Last Supper, and is in some way for us as Christians inaugurated in this Last Supper as Christ is talking about the sacrifice that he would make on our behalf. All of that rich history is there. And then there's more. In the very first verse of our text, verse 17, it tells us that this took place on the first day of the festival of unleavened bread. So there's some overlap between the Passover celebration and the festival of unleavened bread. The festival of unleavened bread, which means bread without yeast, started on this day of the Passover celebration. And if we go to that very same text, Exodus chapter 12, a couple verses later, we see God talk about the unleavened bread. He says to them, after the whole lamb thing, for seven days, the bread you eat must be made without yeast. On the first day of the festival, remove every trace of yeast from your homes. Anyone who eats bread made with yeast, leaven, during the seven days of the festival, festival will be cut off from the community of Israel. Cut off. So God was pretty serious about this whole thing of, listen, I have given a life in your stead. I am nourishing you on that sacrificial life. I am resetting your entire life according to the sacrifice that was made for you. And now I want to teach you something by causing you to refrain from leavened bread for a while. Bread without yeast. Now, what is the importance of this? What does this mean? Let's learn a Hebrew word. The Hebrew word for leaven, chometz, means bitter or sour right that is the hebrew word that was used to talk about yeast or leaven the hebrew word bitter or sour and throughout scripture with the exception of a couple times leaven or yeast is used as this imagery or this picture of sin and the effects of sin in our life that it's 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 like yeast it's like leaven it permeates it has an influence it inflates like yeast causes bread to rise. And it also has this nature to it where it's sour and it's bitter. So, leaven is this picture of sin and its effects in our lives. Now, the night before Passover, as part of the observance, so this would have happened in every Jewish home in Jerusalem the night before our text right here. Every head of of every Jewish home would search the home with a candle for any yeast. It was sort of ceremonial. It's not like mama was losing yeast in the corners of the house. Like, where did I put that yeast? It's in the corner. Get a candle and look. It was like a ceremonial thing. The idea was we are going to make in our home, listen to me now, we are going to make in our home a careful search for any leaven. The head of the household is going to get a candle. He's going to scour and look through every single corner to make sure that all the leaven in the home during this time has been disposed of. There's no leaven left over. There's no secret leaven. There's no leaven hiding. There's no leaven residing in the corners. He's going to make sure that all the leaven is out. And after he made the thorough search in the presence of the whole family, he would pray this ancient prayer. He would say, quote, All leaven that is in my possession, that which I have seen and that which I have not seen, be it null, be it accounted as dust of the earth. In other words, in accordance to God's law and what God said. I am disassociating myself with all leaven in my presence. Let leaven be to me and my household as nothing. And so God said in that text, they were to eat unleavened bread for the next seven days, a whole week, a picture of completion, that they were to have this complete break with leaven in their lives because of what God had done through the sacrifice. This was a new beginning. There was to be a new relationship with leaven, a new understanding about leaven. The big picture being that we who are redeemed by the sacrifice and who nourish ourselves on the sacrifice ought to then forsake sin. That's the picture. That's what he was trying to teach ancient Israel. That's what sits behind this celebratory meal. We who have been redeemed by the sacrifice and who are nourished on the sacrifice should live a new life wherein we forsake sin. Of course, there's a New Testament equivalent passage. 1 Corinthians says this, do you not know that a little leaven, a little yeast leavens the whole lump of dough? Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump, just as you are, in fact, unleavened. I want you to notice that there. The identity thing, you are in Christ unleavened, right? We've been cleansed from sin. So act that way. Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump, as you actually are position in Christ and then how we act in light of what Christ has done for us. For Christ, our Passover also has been sacrificed. See that? In light of the sacrifice, have a new relationship with leaven. You have been through the sacrifice cleansed from leaven, from sin, so then act differently as it pertains to sin. Therefore, let us celebrate the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Let's learn another Hebrew word. The Hebrew word for unleavened bread is matzo. You know that word, you've heard it before. It means sweet or without sourness. So, the word for leaven means sour or bitter. The word for unleavened bread means sweet. The idea that is carried here in picture is the sweetness that comes to a life when it has, with the help of Christ, forsaken sin, as opposed to the bitterness that envelops and pervades and begins to characterize. Yeah, that's the right word. Our lives when we fail to forsake sin. Can I get a witness about the bitterness of sin? Can I get a witness about the sweetness of righteousness and repentance? What Hebrews chapter 12 calls the peaceful fruit of righteousness. So the life without leaven in the New Testament becomes this picture of sanctification. Notice in the text that it is both positional. We are unleavened bread and practical. We are then to live that out and to act that way, to forsake the leaven in our lives. God's work of sanctification in our lives that we cooperate with. So because we have been delivered from Egypt, sin and slavery, we have this new beginning. The calendar has been reset. So we are to live for God's glory and not our own. This is explained so wonderfully in Romans chapter six. We know it well, but we'll read a couple verses very quickly. We know that our old sinful selves were crucified with Christ so that sin might lose its power in our lives. We are no longer slaves to sin. Someone say, amen. amen. For when we died with Christ, we were set free from the power of sin. And since we die with Christ, we know we will also live with him, right? Since then. We are sure of this because Christ was raised from the dead and he'll never die again. Death no longer has any power over him. When he died, he died once to break the power of sin, but now that he lives, he lives for the glory of God. So, you also should consider yourselves to be dead to the power of sin and alive to God through Christ Jesus. Do not let sin control the way that you live, do not give in to sinful desires. Do not let any part of your body become an instrument of evil to serve sin. Instead, give yourselves completely to God for you were dead, but now you have new life. So use your whole body as an instrument to do what is right for the glory of God. It would have been so strange for Israel having been delivered by Egypt and brought into the promises of God to still then live like slaves. Someone would have slapped them and said, what are you doing? Live like free people. You've been set free by the sacrifice. Nourish yourself on that sacrifice and live in a new way. The calendar's been reset in the same way. We who have been delivered and have new life ought to live in a new way. The truth is through Christ, sin no longer has power over us. So the text says, don't give it power. Don't enslave yourself to it again. Stop empowering it. Live out the truth of what Christ has done for you. To continue to live with the same relationship to leaven, to sin, is incongruent and unfaithful. It doesn't make sense in light of who Christ is and what he's done. It's very much as if Christ had a table of intimacy set and someone there with him was a betrayer. Which is exactly the picture that's unfolding in the text. See it again in verse 20. When evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table of the twelve. And while they were eating, he said, Truly I tell you, one of you will betray me. They were all very sad and began to say to him one after the other, Surely you don't mean me, Lord. Jesus replied, The one who has dipped his hand into the bowl with me will betray me. I want you to notice something very interesting here and think about your own life. Each one of them there wondered if it could be them right? Verse 22 again. Jesus said, one of you is going to betray me. Verse 22 on the screen. One of you is going to betray me. And one after another, they said, Lord, am I the one? In another translation, it reads like that. Am I the one, Lord? Can you imagine the tension around the room? Can you imagine what's going on in their hearts and minds? It would be as if you were at a dinner table with Jesus and Jesus said, you know, one of you has been very naughty. And then looked around the room, right? Every one of us knowing ourselves would have been like, all the things that would flash through our minds that we didn't think Jesus saw, that he didn't know about, right? All the stuff that we had going on in our hearts. Like if that happened, we'd have the same reaction. We'd all be like, oh, he might be talking about me. And obviously this whole experience with Jesus and the disciples was so tumultuous. They did not put it past themselves. Isn't that interesting? They actually all ask like, oh, no, Lord, are you you talking about me? And again, we ought not to judge the disciples very harshly because we'll see them one day. And I'm sure they'll have much to say about it to us preachers. But isn't there some dissonance around the table that all of them thought it might have been them? Why don't we hope for more? Right, wouldn't we think like, gosh, none of those guys are going to like betray Jesus, right? Yeah, Judas, we know about him. But wouldn't we hope for more from their li- from their lives? And so with us, once we have been brought to the table of the Lord, shouldn't we hope for more? Wouldn't we have this grand hope that if we were seated at the table with Jesus, as we are, and he said, one of you has been very naughty, Man, can you imagine the living into the place of freedom where we're like, "Not I, Lord." It seems bold and it seems proud, but it also seems like what Hebrews or excuse me, Romans chapter six says our lives ought to be like. That there would be this confidence in what God had done in us and His work for us. That around the table, sin should be forsaken. We don't want the conversations around the table: who might betray the Lord, who's been naughty. And we know ourselves, so we know that's a conversation. But can we aim high for once in our lives? According to the power of the Holy Spirit and the truth of God's word? Can we aim in a different direction than Judas? I'm sure that Judas did not come to this decision in an instant. Right? That's often the excuse that we make when we've been caught in some gross sin. Oh, I just, you know, and then I just, and then it was there, and then I, and I just fell right into it. No, you didn't. There was a long road of stubbornness and rebellion that took you to that moment, maybe even that location, maybe that space, maybe even that possibility. I'm sure knowing the nature of sin and the nature of ourselves that there was a long and stubborn and rebellious heart in Judas, a long road that he had traveled to get to the place of rebellion. That's not an overnight decision. I want you to notice that when the disciples asked, it's not me, is it? They said, Lord, master, it's not me, is it my master? When Judas asked, he said, it's not me, is it, rabbi? Which just means teacher. See what was going on in Judas's heart? The other guys, though they were perhaps humble in their self-doubt, they were at least like master toward Jesus. Judas held him at arm's length as mere teacher. That's an issue of the heart. You know, Jesus is meant to be Lord of our lives, not merely a good example, not the one that we just read about and shows us the way and helps us out with some stuff. He's meant to be the Lord. And so when we think about the nature of sin, when we think about Judas, we ought to watch the roads that we are traveling in our hearts, where we set Jesus aside as some sort of optional teacher rather than Lord and Master. Paul would write to Timothy and say something like this about watching the roads of our hearts. He'd say, now flee from youthful lusts and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. There's some good just like advice So if you come to these things that are tempting you, run from them, flee from them, and then pursue the right things of God with other people who are doing that with a pure heart. And the Lord's Supper communion that we'll take together today that Jesus is instituting here in our text is an opportunity to do that, to just search our hearts and say, is there any hard rebellious road I'm going down that leads toward practical betrayal of who Christ is and what he's done for me? Is there anything I need to forsake, anything I need to repent of and begin to head down the right road? Paul says that explicitly in 1 Corinthians 11 when he says this about the Lord's Supper. Every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, you're announcing the Lord's death until he comes again. So anyone who eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord unworthily is guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. That's why you should examine yourself before eating the bread and drinking the cup. Now, there was a particular context there. They were getting together for the Lord's meal and in the early church. They did it like Jesus did it. They actually did it around a broader meal. Some people were coming early and they were like eating all the fruit and drinking all the drinks. And, and, and Paul said to them, gosh, by the time the other people get there, you guys are like full and drunk and these other people haven't even come. So you're just like, just coming to the whole Lord's Supper thing with the wrong attitude. You need to repent of that. He even said to them, some of you are sick and dying because of the way you're doing that as a judgment from the Lord. So the Lord's Supper that we often take together on Sundays is this opportunity for self-examination in light of the sacrifice that has been made for us, the way we are to be nourished on it and the resetting of our lives on a new trajectory. It's a time of self-examination, realizing that Christ died that we may be forgiven of our many sins, not be given permission to commit more. So when we think about the Lord's Supper and we think about this meal, we think about repentance. We think about not wanting to be the Judas at the table. But we don't only leave it there. It is predominantly also the good news of what Jesus has done for us. That's the bulk of it. It's not just the leaven that we need to leave behind, but the sacrifice that has been made on our behalf. Matthew 26, looking at verses 26 and 28 again. While they were eating, Jesus took the bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples saying, take and eat. This is my body. Then he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. So let's finish by looking at what Jesus teaches us there. I want us to notice, first of all, the bold good news that it is. It comes right on the heels of Judas. And everyone at the table knowing that in them was this Judas tendency. They all had to ask the question. Jesus, when you talk about incongruent living, when you talk about betrayal, when you talk about dissonance and intimacy with you, are are you maybe talking about me? All of them had this possible impetus in them. And Jesus in response says to them immediately, you know what? I will be broken for you and my blood will be spilt for you. In other words, the good news about God's love in Christ is bigger than the bad news about our sin as people. And it confronts and addresses. And immediately on the heels of Judas, instead of letting them reel in that moment of betrayal, Jesus enters in with the light of deliverance and says, yes, Judas, but here is what I will do for you. And in doing so, Jesus gave a whole new meaning to the Passover meal there and the Passover celebration by instituting some of the elements, the bread and the wine, as his symbolic of his body and his blood. Now, in our text, we assume that they would have been using unleavened bread. Unleavened bread in Scripture comes to you in the New Testament, symbolize the pure and spotless unleavened life of Christ, Remember the idea of unleavened and imagery in the Bible is without sin. So the pure and spotless, without sin, life of Christ. The book of Hebrews says that Jesus was pure, innocent, holy, undefiled, and separate from sinners. The bread represents that. And then our lives, when Jesus says, I am the bread of life, are meant to be, again, sustained and nourished in him in light of his righteousness and not our own. It's his righteousness that sustains us, not our own. It's what Christ has done for us, not what we could do by which we are sustained. That's why he he broke the the unleavened bread, the, the, the picture of spotlessness and sinlessness and said, take this and eat it. This is what you need. And this is symbolic of me and my sacrifice for you. And back in Exodus 12, that text that we were looking at, when Israel would have fled Egypt that night, what they would have had with them to eat for the next week was the unleavened bread. And their break with slavery, their immediate sustaining would have come through this unleavened bread and they would have realized God's provision in it. So I'm saying it again now for the fifth or sixth time, but I can't stress it enough. We who have been saved by the sacrifice are meant to be nourished on the sacrifice. Jesus once again saying in John, I am the bread. So then communion that Jesus is instituting here, the Lord's Supper, becomes this physical experience of this faith reality where we are meant to be nourished on the person of Christ. In the New Testament, God has given us some some physical experiences to to mark, to commemorate, and to celebrate our faith, right? Uh, Baptism is one of them. Communion, the Lord's Supper, is another one of them. In the Old Testament, there were many, the festivals and the feasts, Passover being one of them. But this is a physical experience of something that is made real by faith. By faith, by believing in Jesus, we are nourished in this new life that we have. In symbolism of that, we come to the Lord's Supper and we take the bread and we actually taste it in our mouths. We feel it go down into us. It rests inside of us. God has given given it to us as a way to experience Experience and remember and feel and taste and ingest what is true by faith that Christ is a sacrifice that we are nourished on. It's interesting that in between the Old Testament and the New Testament, this is just a little aside here that I find interesting. In the Old Testament, God had just said, hey, make the bread without leaven, without yeast. In between the Old Testament and the New Testament, rabbis got together and they said, all of the unleavened bread that we use in Jewish ceremonies, excuse me, should have stripes put in it and holes put in it. Anybody hearing me? Rabbis got together between the Old Testament and the New Testament. This became rabbinical law and said all of the matzah, the bread that we use in Jewish ceremony, should not only have no leaven in it, it should have stripes put in it and holes put in it. That's why when you come and take the Lord's Supper today, there's matzah bread there, gluten-free by the way, <laughs> which is not only unleavened, but it has stripes in it and it has holes in it. Isn't that just interesting? In light of what the prophet Isaiah Recorded for us in Isaiah 53, where it says, He was pierced through for our transgressions, He was crushed for our iniquities, the chastening for our well being fell upon Him, and by His scourging or by His stripes, another translation says, we are healed. Isn't that interesting? I wonder if the disciples saw it when Jesus broke the bread that night. Nah, probably not. Then it says in our text, again, Matthew 26, 27, and 28, that Jesus took the cup. Then he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. He said about the cup. He held it up. It was the third cup of the Seder, the Passover meal, which was known as the cup of redemption in the celebration. He held it up, and Normally, uh, the head of the household would give the traditional Jewish blessing. Baruch Ata Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam. And then say something about how he uh, provides the fruit of the vine. Blessed is the Lord our God. That would be the normal blessing. Jesus said that and then he said, this is the blood of the new covenant. Now here's what I'm sure the Jewish disciples said did not miss that evening. There's only one other time in the whole Bible where blood and covenant have been put together there for their understanding. The first covenant, after the sacrifices made for them, They're nourished on the sacrifice. There's a break with the old life. There's a new calendar. They're being brought into the promises of God. They come to Mount Sinai in the wilderness experience as God is bringing them into the promised land. And God gives them the law and they enter into a covenant through Moses with God. Exodus 24, we'll look at it. A covenant is an agreement that forms the basis of a relationship. Exodus 24. Then Moses came and recounted to the people all the words of the Lord and all the ordinances. So Moses had just been up on the mountain and he got God's law from God. And all the people answered with one voice, look at this, and said, all the words which the Lord has spoken, we will do. That's important to remember, right? God gave them his law, which revealed, give me your attention for a moment, which revealed the holiness of God, the goodness of God, the care of God, the righteousness of God, all those things, and they heard what Moses reported from his time with God on Mount Sinai, and they said, everything there we will do. So Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord, right, holding them accountable. Okay, let's put this in writing, boys and girls. Then he arose early in the morning, built an altar at the foot of the mountain with the 12 pillars for the 12 tribes of Israel. He sent young men of the sons of Israel, and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls as peace offerings to the Lord. Moses took half of the blood and put it in the basin and the other half of the blood he sprinkled on the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people and they said, again, all the Lord has spoken, we will do and we will be obedient. So Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people. A little gruesome. And said, behold, the blood of the covenant. That's the only time in scripture prior to this where those words are put together. Behold, the blood of the covenant, which the Lord has made you with you in accordance with all these words in Old Testament sacrifices there were always two parts there was always the animal that was sacrificed and then there was the blood and the blood was used as like a ratification of that sacrifice that's why the blood was brought before the altar it was poured out at the altar sometimes the blood was put on things when priests were ordained in the Old Testament they had to have some blood applied to them to their right thumb to their right big toe to their right ear lobe noting sanctification ratification of what God was doing them it, 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 it was the enacting of what was accomplished through the sacrifice. Here, there's a sacrifice made for the covenant. There's always a sacrifice made for the covenant, husbands. Okay, whatever. There's a sacrifice made. (laughs) Read your Bible. There's a sacrifice made for the covenant. And then there's blood applied. And because the people said, everything that God said, we will do. The basis of this covenant was the people's we will. So Moses said, okay, boys and girls, and spotted the blood on them. This one's on you. See what's happening there? That's the old covenant, the covenant at Sinai, the Mosaic covenant. The basis of this relationship was God had said, Here's the righteous standard, and the people said, We will do. So Jesus now takes this new cup holds it up and says, this is the blood of the new covenant. In other words, there's still going to be an agreement on the basis of relationship, but the conditions are about to change. And when he said new covenant, there's only a couple other times in the Old Testament where those phrases are put together. The Jewish disciples would have recalled Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 36, where God promised that one day there was coming a new and better covenant. And we have some of that here for you. Look at the terms of this new relationship. See if you can spot the difference on the emphasis of onus. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. Right, they're talking about that old covenant. My covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, right? They said, we will do and they didn't do declares the Lord. Verse 33. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and on their heart, I will write it. Remember, Moses had written it down on something else. God says, there's coming day, I'm gonna put it in you. I'm gonna put my truth and my standard in you. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. Verse 34. They will not teach again, saying each man his neighbor, or each man his neighbor, and each man, to each man, whatever, saying, know the Lord for they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them declares the Lord for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. Continuing now into Ezekiel where we have more of it. I will not let you hear insults from the nations anymore, nor will you bear the disgrace of peoples any longer, nor will you cause the nation to stumble any longer. Than the Oh, this is not the right text. The woman and her impurity, that is definitely not the right text. Ezekiel 36, let me just read it to you. Sorry about that, my bad. More of the conditions of the new covenant. Ezekiel 36. Here it is. He says to Israel, "For I will take you out of the, starting in verse 24. For I will take you out of the nations where you've been scattered and I will gather you from all the countries and bring you back into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you." And you will be clean and I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. So notice what the onus is there. In the previous covenant, it was we will. In the new covenant, God says, I will. I will. That's the main point. God says, I will. I will remove your sin. I will remove your iniquity. You failed to do it. I will do it for you. I will put my law in your heart and I will put my spirit in you. And this is incredibly good news for those who have lived under the weight of guilt for violating God's righteous standard. So the book of Hebrews goes on to say, hopefully Hebrews goes on to say, And so, dear brothers and sisters, we can boldly enter heaven's most holy place because of the blood of Jesus. In the old covenant, they were sprinkled with blood as a sign of the fact that they were responsible for God's standard. Now we are symbolically sprinkled with the blood of Christ that has freed us from the standard and forgiven us of all of our sins. So we have this break through the blood with the old life and we've been brought into a new life. In the old covenant, the onus was on we will. They weren't able to keep it. They forsook the blessings or they lost the blessings. In the new covenant, God, through Christ, delivers for us. Jesus has kept the conditions, and so the blessings of his promises are secure. Ephesians 1 says, All praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us, past tense, has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms because we are united to Christ. And so when we come to the Lord's Supper, when we come and take communion, we do it to remember and celebrate the I will of God. I will forgive your iniquity. I will cleanse you. I will put my spirit in you. And that's what Christ was enacting and talking about that night. And so Jesus said in Luke 22 that when we do this, we are to do it in remembrance of him. So that means whenever you do it or on Sundays when you do it, that we are to come and rejoice in the fact of the sacrifice that was made on our behalf. And not only to remember, but to, through faith, nourish ourselves on Christ. Paul said in Galatians 2.20 about being nourished on Christ, my old self has been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. So I live in this earthly body by trusting in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's nourishing ourselves on Christ trusting in him for this life who loves us and gave himself for us so when you come to the lord's supper as a christian and you only come as a christian when you come as a christian who's repented of your sins been forgiven by what jesus did on the cross you come with self-examination you come in remembrance of what's been done for you and you come to confess the fact that you need to be sustained in your life by christ and the reason why we generally do it together is communion is also a picture of our unity in Christ. Just as they were all around the table and they all took from the same bread and cup, that's a picture of our oneness in Christ as forgiven. It says in 1 Corinthians, when we, when we bless the cup at the Lord's table, aren't we sharing in the blood of Christ? And when we break the bread, aren't we sharing in the body of Christ? And though we are many, We all eat from one loaf of bread showing that we are one body. So the unity of believers and then also this confession that we are all in need of forgiveness. We all need to enter into the new covenant through Christ. We are all in need of being sustained by Christ. So can we just mellow the level of judgmentalism in the body of Christ? Can we just increase the level of kindness? Can we just know that we are all sinners saved by grace, brought to the table? When Jesus says, gosh, one of you here has been naughty, we're all like, and yet we are cleansed and forgiven and washed and made new. And then finally, last thing I'll say, Paul taught that when we take communion, we do it to proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We do it as a declarative celebratory statement to the whole world. Paul said this in Corinthians, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So it's like a celebration. So when you take communion today and you come and take the bread, go like, like celebrate and proclaiming that Christ died for me and he's risen from the dead and he's coming again. He's coming again. And so there is in communion, not only this looking back to the cross, but this looking forward to the fullness of the kingdom. Right, I told you that uh, this last supper was not the last supper. That Jesus spoke of a greater supper in verse 29 when he said, I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. What do you think he was talking about? It's always at the end of the book, the book of Revelation, chapter 19, when Christ comes again, look at the last, last supper, the greater supper, the greatest supper. And a voice came from the throne saying, Give praise to our God, all you his bondservants, you who fear him, the small and great. Then I heard something like the voice of a great multitude and like the sound of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder. This is the sounds of heaven. So don't sweat it when the sound in this room is a little loud. (laughs) Saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to him for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride, who's that? Has made herself ready. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean for the fine linen is a righteous acts of the saints. Notice that they are given to us the righteousness of Christ. Then he said to me, Right, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are true words of God. So when we take communion, we're not only celebrating, we're not only remembering, do this in remembrance of me, we're not only looking back, we're not only declaring that we are one, but we are also declaring that Christ is coming again. And one day, all of our woes, all of our sin, all of the bitterness, all the brokenness in our culture will be consumed in the arrival of Christ and the fullness of the kingdom. And our unity will be fully realized, our witness with God will be fully realized, and it will be there, a party the marriage supper of the Lamb. And we will be with Christ forever. Yeah, glory to God. Thank you, Lord, for these truths. Help us to live in a way that is simply joyful about the salvation that's been brought to us. Thank you, Jesus, that you said on the cross, it is finished, and that you've opened up a new way for us. So today, as we come to the table We ask that we would do so with great joy, celebration in our hearts, for we've been sprinkled clean through the blood of Christ. Pray that today as we do so, it would be an affirmation of your lordship in our lives. We would do it in hope of your coming, and it would be an affirmation of our oneness as the body of Christ. Thank you, Jesus. In the meantime, You said, I will never leave you or forsake you. Pray for those who are in great need today that as they come to the Lord's table and they taste and they ingest this picture of your body and of your blood that hope would be renewed for them. Thank you, God, that your love is bigger than our rebellion and that in you is forgiveness of sins. Pray for anyone here today who has never repented of their sins before you, God, and put their trust in Christ that they would do so even at this moment in their hearts. They would say, I'm a sinner, but Jesus is a savior. Forgive me, God. Save me, Christ. And they would experience the promise of this new life.